No matter where you are and when you're listening, welcome back to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. And I am your host, Karen Tate. And you know what? We talk about the things here. Uh, My little mama told me that uh, we shouldn't talk about in public or at the dining room table. Uh, We talk about sex, power, gender, religion, politics. Uh, This isn't a place where we necessarily, you know, play it safe. And, uh, you know, I also like to uncover hidden history uh, and uh, alternatives to the status quo. So it's a big umbrella here. And I am so pleased uh, to have with me today, uh, returning to the show, uh, Rachel McCoppin. And uh, she's been on the show before. She's a PhD and professor of literature at the University of Minnesota, Crookston. And uh, I invited her back um, a few months uh, since her her last show when we uh, talked about our last book because I saw she had another jewel in her crown of books that I think my audience would uh, be interested in. And uh, that uh, title of that jewel is The Legacy of the Goddess, Heroines, Warriors, and Witches, from World Mythology to Folk Tales and Fairy Tales. So that's what we're going to be chatting about today in just a minute. Uh, But I have just a little bit of housekeeping to do. Um, I just want to say that if you're listening live, uh, you can set the clock by us. Uh, It is 11 a.m. on a Wednesday, Pacific time. And uh, if you're confused about this um, podcast platform thing, um, just know that if you want to subscribe to the show and you want notices in your inbox once a week of who I'm talking to and what we're talking about, you have to go to Blog Talk for that, Blog Talk Radio, which is where my show originates from. You go to my page, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, on Blog Talk. You hit the subscribe button. You will always know what I'm talking about each Wednesday. You don't have to rely on getting an email, you know, because maybe you're not on my newsletter. Uh, You don't have to check out Facebook because, you know, maybe you missed the post. This way you'll never miss the guests. And, you know, if it's something or someone you're not interested in, hit the delete button. Uh, But we are everywhere else. You know, we are on Spotify, Amazon, Google Podcasts, iHeart, Apple. I believe everywhere there is a podcast, uh, you can access Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Uh, and if you can't, there's certainly another one you can try. You know, we're on all the biggies. So anyway, I hope that's helpful because I've had some inquiries, um, you know, where this was a little bit confusing. And I hope uh, hope that helps a bit. All right. So um, as I – oh, and one more thing. Um, thanks goes out to Celia, the, uh, the, the beautiful songstress. Uh, who opened the show, uh, who who I am very grateful. She allows me to use her music. And uh, that cut of hers was called Meta Prayer. And if you go to my website, uh, karentate.net, where all my podcast links are also posted, uh, in the show notes there you can see, you know, how to find Celia. You can also find uh, how to find Rachel, our guest. And, um, you know, and find links directly to her books and links directly to Celia's music. Try to make it easy and support the people, um, you know, who are here on the show, uh, you know, bringing their wisdom, their knowledge, their expertise to you. And you know what? While you're there at KarenTate.net, let me just say, scroll all the way down to the bottom and please do buy me a cup of coffee and show your appreciation for the show. Uh, This isn't a show where I'm paid to put it on the air. I actually have to come out of my pocket and bring this to you. So, All right, that all said, um, I'm turning my attention now to my wonderful guest. Uh, Rachel, I'm so glad to have you uh, returning here to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Um, Thank you for 
you know, given me your time and attention because you are just so knowledgeable. Oh, thank you so much, Karen, for having me back to the show. Um, I'm just so excited to, to be able to talk with you again and our listeners today. Well, good, good. Well, you know, for uh, listeners who might have missed the first interview a couple months ago, it was on uh, Rachel's book. Uh, the title was Goddess Lost, How the Downfall of Female Deities Degraded Women's Status in World Culture. I mean, that's a really important topic, you know. Um, I would think most women would want to know, you know, why they're second class. Uh, in this patriarchal world. And Rachel, you know, you've also done other books, and I wonder how you have found the time. You have Ecological Heroes of uh, Emmer Indian Mythology, uh, The Lessons of Nature in Mythology, The Hero's Journey and the Cycles of Nature, and you've also published a bunch of scholarly articles, um, you know, in the areas of mythology and comparative religions. I mean, is it safe to say, you know, this is the subject that that really floats your boat and makes it worthwhile to get up in the morning (laughs) yeah that's a a really good way of putting it (laughs) i just i do have a passion um specifically looking at uh world mythology um and i really do enjoy connecting uh you know, what makes world mythology something that is so timeless? Why do people, why are they so attracted to these myths that in many cases are thousands of years old? Um, and it, it, it just has been a passion of mine. So, um, yeah, I enjoy looking at connections of nature in um, some of these treasured myths that, that we have preserved and, um you know, also the role of women within these myths and how in some ways are women connected to this reverence of nature that we see in so many cultures. So, yeah, I am, I'm fascinated in many areas <laughs> within mythology. Well, well, let me ask you this. And, you know, and um, I, I wonder, do you think the people are fascinated and they come back because they're simply interested in being uh, entertained? It's a, you know, it's an interesting story. Or do you think they're interested, interested in the message of the story? Because oftentimes these stories do, stories do have a moral, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. I I do teach mythology, and I always talk about with my classes um, that there's there's just this mysterious thing, I think, that is in a lot of world um, myths and connected to today's topic, too, in in world folktales and fairy tales, that often we think that myths, are and folk tales and fairy tales are just um, tales of entertainment, you know. Um, maybe most specifically in fairy tales in our contemporary culture, we think um, Disney versions, for instance, are something that just should entertain us. But when we really start to delve into um, myths, folk tales, and fairy tales, we see these mysterious elements that. Um, I don't know, sometimes they make us feel uneasy. You know, we, we begin to realize that there's, there's really a lot of depth in these myths, folktales, and fairy tales. There's a lot of harsh topics that are discussed. There's a lot of um, religious sometimes concepts that are discussed or spiritual concepts that are discussed. And I think it's, for me, and, and often for my students, I think that it's that element that, We've, for some reason, we think that these stories are entertainment, but when we really begin to study them and look for maybe more hidden truths within these tales, we see that there is so much more there. We begin to see why these tales have lasted hundreds, sometimes thousands of years. Well, and and I well, in a couple things, I you know uh, what you've just said kind of pulls to the foreground for me. You know, first, I mean, I think about when I first learned about myths. Uh, it was you know the Greek goddesses in grade school. Right. Um, we weren't encouraged to look deeper. You know, we just learned about Hera, uh, the you know the petulant wife chasing after her philandering husband Zeus or Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And, you know, that was kind of 
where it stopped. And maybe if you went into women's studies or literature, you delve deeper, where I, I hate to say it, but I think maybe most people don't go. And, and then maybe if, you know, if you've gotten the sanitized version of the myth, um, you know, if you're Cinderella, is it? Yeah. Uh, oh, no, Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty, you know, um, your savior is the prince, you know, and it, maybe it says the wrong, sends the wrong message to little girls that, well, you know, uh, you know a man's going to come save you uh, from, from, you know, your challenges in the world. Um, I don't know. Do you think there's a problem with how how these are uh, taught? Um, I, I, I don't know. It, from what I just said, what hits you? So the answer is yes. <laughs> I would say a resounding <laughs> yes. Um, I think, but it opens up a lot of um, discussion points. So. I think that, yes, in contemporary Western society, we are taught primarily Greek mythology. Um, We expand a little bit. You know, there's some Norse mythology being taught. But unless you are specifically searching in different arenas, I don't think you're presented to a whole lot. Um, But it's also really beneficial, I think, that so many of us know our Greek mythology because you really don't have to know a whole lot about Greek mythology to be bothered by Greek mythology if you are a woman. You know, um, if we hear stories of Hera, like you mentioned, or Aphrodite, um, many, many people hear those myths and immediately feel kind of angry, right? Like, why is Hera always presented in Greek mythology as just this jealous and angry wife because her husband Zeus is always cheating? You know, there's just no depth to Hera. Um, Aphrodite is the goddess of love, but she keeps having these, like, fickle affairs in Greek mythology. Um, And, again, there's just no depth to her. Um, And there's a lot of history. Um, I do talk about that in my first book, um, Goddess Lost. But there's a lot of history that explains why we have this presentation of Greek goddesses as, very one-dimensional figures. And a lot of that really has to do, um, which is a long, long discussion, but with the rise of patriarchy within um, ancient Greece. Um, But we begin to see this legacy, certainly in, in Western civilization, but also around the world. We see that um, there's a lot more behind the mythology that we know. And often, Um, and my new book uh, does discuss this, The Legacy of the Goddess, there is this, I believe, direct connection from some of the backstory of mythology, some of the true stories, maybe the older mythological stories that show women not as one-dimensional and not as fickle, but as extremely powerful, as leaders of pantheons, um, if they are goddesses, or as leaders of civilizations, as um, you know, high priestess in certain circles, or um, extremely valuable warrior. You know, they, there are mythic women who appear as a immensely strong. And so I do think we see this legacy that has been preserved from these more powerful women um, uh, that appear in this uh, in the folklore and the fairy tales of many cultures around the world. It's, it's odd to me. Like you, when I really started to delve into um, folk tales and fairy tales, there are so many more folk tales and fairy tales that actually do portray extremely powerful female characters. Um, and that's kind of odd, you know. I think because of history, what happened in ancient civilizations, often we just don't see a whole lot of strong and powerful women in myth. But we certainly begin to see a lot of strong and powerful women in folk tales and fairy tales. And I ask the question in my book, like, why, why are we seeing that? Um, and I do feel, and I argue in my book, that there is um, a lot of evidence that is showing that for whatever reason, you know, folk tales and fairy tales traditionally were passed down by women. 
maybe that's a reason. <laughs> um, I mean, even some of our most beloved Western fairy tales that we all know, like Sleeping Beauty, like you mentioned, Cinderella, um, there's a lot of evidence that shows that even the Brothers Grimm, for instance, they are getting their tales from women storytellers. So is it plausible, is it possible that folk tales and fairy tales were preserved by women and are actually carrying over messages of very ancient mythological traditions where women were once revered as leaders of pantheons, as goddesses, um, and, you know, women held much higher social positions, um, especially in, in spiritual affairs. And I, I think yeah. the answer to that is yes. I think that we do see, um, we're introduced to fairy tales in a way that seems like at first glance, oh, here's Hera all over again. Here is a sleeping beauty who's passed out, who's pretty much not doing anything in the, the story, and um, she needs a man to rescue her, and then everything's great. But if we look closer at stories like that, like Sleeping Beauty, like Cinderella, like Snow White is one of my favorites, um, we see that there's a whole lot more going on uh, behind the scenes. If we look at first editions, for examples, which are, for example, which might have been carried over more um, from when the stories were told, you know, orally, um, we see like a lot more, I think, interesting elements to the tales. We see very often um, that there are mothers uh, who are they appear maybe villainous, but um, they're educating these these young maidens in these tales uh, to become really pretty powerful. Like, um, I think one really simple indication is that most of our young heroines in folk tales and primarily fairy tales, they end up becoming royalty. <laughs> you know, like perhaps that is a clue. You know, there there seems to be this pattern of education by an older woman, maybe by a villainous woman, maybe by a really scary woman. Maybe the woman is even a monster or a witch. There's this pattern of education of the young female to learn really hard and scary things so that she can become very powerful. Um, through her education, um, and perhaps that position of royalty is an indication, you know, of her power that she will have socially. Well, and, and I guess, you know, you always need um, an antagonist, but um, it's sad that the teacher has to be a villain or a monster, <laughs> you know, um, uh it, it, you know to uh you know to be the bearer of the of the knowledge or the lesson and um i don't know i guess i just you know in an ideal world you know if we ever can um live in a world where the patriarchy is diminished it would be wonderful to have our girls grow up with these stories of strength and you know what maybe you know maybe there would be more women out there who were who could emulate that and you know have a stronger backbone to you know to um you know be a stronger force in the world yeah absolutely i actually think um at least for me, and, and I think that's maybe one of the goals of the book, is um, at first glance, you know, we have to be really be careful about what we're seeing. You know, at first glance in Greek mythology, Hera, we don't really like Hera. You know, she's always sort of meddling in the lives of these male heroes, and, and you question why is she doing this. Um, and it's kind of the same in our folk tales and our fairy tales. We... The witch, for instance, in Hansel and Gretel. We don't like her, right? She's going to eat these poor, unfortunate children. Um, but if we look closer at these characters, if we look at the witch in particular, um, I don't know that they're all that villainous. You know, uh, there's a lot of a lot of researched uh, discussion out there that shows that witches primarily in folk tales and fairy tales they are doing things that are really close to the goddesses of ancient mythology um, they can shape shift from human to animal form from um, youth to old age uh, they can shape shift between sex 
um, they can tame ferocious animals or they just have these like um, mythic creatures around them or animals that live um, like within uh, their compounds. They can, witches in folktales and fairy tales can just change the weather <laughs> at will. You know, that's what we're seeing in ancient myths. Um, so well, I you think... Yeah, we have to be careful in defining them as villainous. Who who are they? Who are the witches in these tales? And who are they teaching? And, and what are they teaching? And are they actually teaching things that, yeah, they might appear at first glance as villainous and as, as negative, but maybe that's a patriarchal definition of that character. Maybe another definition is, oh, that witch is teaching the young maiden of the tale to learn to be self-sufficient, to learn to be like her. Witches live, like, removed from society. Um, they're always on the outskirts. And often we see, like, kings, I mean, that's a really common theme, um, needing to bend to the will of the witch. That's really interesting. You know, maybe that is a holdover of, of you know, these female-centered um, mythological systems that were once in place. Well, you know, you're making me think of a few things. Uh, first of all, you know, you just said the king having to bend to the witch. <clears throat> it makes me think of a statue of Zeus who was holding Artemis in his hand. Um, and my understanding of that was, you know, what I read was he believed she gave him additional power. You know, I find that really interesting. Yeah. Um, and. You know, and and I don't know if we talked about this in the in you know in our last interview, but you were making me think about um, Sepmet, the lion-headed Egyptian goddess, and I don't know if you delved much into her. Um, but you know, the only myth out there that I think that's been uncovered is where um, you know her father Ra, the sun god, is upset that you. I think humanity hadn't been appropriately uh, worshiping him, or something like that. He was he was you know his panties in the bunch about something, so he sends <laughs> her out. You know, I think sort of like his mercenary to teach humanity a lesson, and so she goes on a rampage. She's killing humanity you know in, in you know in, in, in the multitudes and uh, the only way they could stop her was to uh, get some beer color it red like it was blood drug it trick her into drinking it so she went to sleep and so you know they tamed the you know the ferocious female lioness and I don't know about you but that story just really tipped me off because right. I mean there's so much so much wrong with it, you know, and yeah. um, and I felt like, okay, so are we just getting the patriarchal version here? And that's what I teach when I talk about Sepmet, that this is the patriarchal version because, I mean, it's it's saying, you know, that she would be dumb enough to go out and be her her um, selfish father's mercenary, uh, you know, pick on innocent humanity potentially, uh, just going to kill indiscriminately. Um, and so I think that says to people, um, well, can you trust women to have good judgment? Can you trust women to wield power uh, in a good way? Or are women just, uh, you know, these emotional beings, you know, that can't be trusted? And, 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 I, and I think it just sends all the wrong messages. So we've started rewriting her myths. Um, and I even teach a class on rewriting a lot of these old myths that put the female whatever, woman, goddess, uh, Pandora, you know, put them in a more positive light because the stories that we get just, you know, do a number on women and send the wrong messages. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think also... I love that you're re rewriting the myths, or at least just having people think about, you know, let's look deeper into those stories. Um, Sekhmet, uh, yeah, I mean, you can definitely view it that, that she is, oh, let's call her in because her um, emotion, <laughs> right, can help her uh, create all, all of this violence, and that'll really show mankind to... to give proper reverence to the leader of the pantheon, Ra, the male <laughs> god. Um, 
But we also, I mean, just in looking differently at Sekhmet, we have to see, um, and we do see this in a lot of different mythological traditions, we, we have to look for the clues that have been left for us. Um, and we see in um, Indian mythology, for instance, um, goddesses like Durga and Kali, there's a lot of stories that are kind of similar to the Sekhmet myth of um, the male gods are not able to properly deal with um, demons, for instance, and so they need the help of the goddess, who might be much older. I mean, there's some um, research out there, Durga in, in particular, might be older than um, the male leaders of the pantheon. They need to call in the help of the female goddess, and she can be a warrior goddess, and she can definitely defeat the demons um, and write the universe. So for me, Sekhmet, um, she's still powerful, you know, and that is really a relief, I think, to see in mythologi mythological traditions that we still are seeing a woman with a lot of power. And it's interesting to me that the male god needs to call her in to, like, deal with what he can't deal with, perhaps. Um, it's interesting mm -hmm. that she shift. <laughs> it's interesting that she can write the universe. It's very frustrating and probably a patriarchal addition later that Ra has to sort of rein her in, <laughs> right? And like, okay, calm down now. Everything is okay. Um, but we shouldn't ignore the fact that she is still very powerful. Um, and I think the same is true in folk tales and in fairy tales. Like once you really start looking at these stories, um, and not just watching the Disney version of the stories, we see that we have a, a lot of folk tales um, and fairy tales that are showing women uh, that can change or shapeshift between animal and human form. I mean, that's a pretty amazing thing, and that's definitely something that it happens all the time in mythological traditions. Um, we have animal bride folk tales and fairy tales where, um, and I love these, and they're really within... Um, many cultures around the world where this young man, I mean, usually the story goes something like this. There's this young man and he wrongfully spies on a young maiden and he finds her so beautiful. It's often when she's bathing, right? He finds her so beautiful um, that he has to take her animal guise. So uh, one of the most common is the swan maiden. So like her feathered cape or her feathers, right, the thing that makes her a swan. Um, he steals it while she's bathing. And um, so then the maiden has to pretty much go with the man, and, and the maiden ends up marrying the man um, and uh, living, and it's described this way over and over again in many cultures, she lives this life of drudgery. You know, she's expected to cook and to clean and to have children and to care for the children, but there's not a whole lot of happiness ever described in these stories. It's really very clear that the swan maiden or sometimes it's a seal maiden or a snake woman or, you know, there's many, many variants, um, they are unhappy, and the stories time and time again ends with this animalistic woman finding um, her animal garb that the husband has hidden away. She puts it back on, and in the case of the swan maidens, um, she flies away, you know, and sometimes they leave their children behind, and that's it. Sometimes they say to their children, you know, learn from me, <laughs> and the children in many of the tales go on to become really powerful, um, that's so interesting to me, you know, in these, in so many of our patriarchal, um, societies where women aren't holding, um, very much power at all, why have we preserved stories where women used to have all of this spiritual perhaps or mystical power, it's taken away from them, um, and they are forced to live, um, you know, a life that they find to be oppressive, and then, they find their power again, and, and you know, they, they rise above it. That's interesting, you know, that we've preserved those tales, I think, is telling us something. Um, and so I talk well, a lot about it, in my Yeah, go well, ahead. Well is, it, well, is it too obvious to say it's a cautionary tale that, you know, from, based on just how you described the thumbnail sketch, 
Uh, if you give your power away, you're going to live a life of drudgery. <laughs> Absolutely. You know? I mean, but I, I find that like such a relief that these tales have been preserved. You know, some of our swan maiden tales or many other variants, um, they are very, very old. They're centuries old. And it's a huge relief that women are telling other women cautionary tales like this but there's even more in there you know it's not just like don't give your life away because you could live this life of drudgery and be oppressed there's that for sure but then there's always um, this aspect to the story that what you're giving away is something really really big <laughs> you know at one time women could shapeshift at, you know in those stories um, women held immense power uh, and they can do these really, really uh, profound things. Beauty and the Beast, for instance. We have a lot of stories that um, show these female characters really um, sort of serving as the educator of the beast, or they are the ones who are transforming the beast. We all know the story, Beauty of the Beast, um, and it, you know, it's really been tamed down, especially for Disney, where beauty is just kind of pretty and nice, and so the beast turns to be docile. But if we look closely at these types of tales, which we find around the world, it's really like the women systematically educating these male characters um, how to bend to their will. Um, we see in a lot of mythological traditions this figure called the mistress of animals, and it's often this goddess, sometimes it's a priestess, who can tame ferocious beasts, you know. And civilizations, they, these communities need the mistress of animals or they're really going to suffer, right? They need to appease the mistress of animals or the animal might just create havoc among the community. Well, in folk tales and fairy tales, it's, it's, it's definitely tamed down a little bit, but we still see even in the story Beauty and the Beast, that really it's Beauty who is in command of the beast. She's still that mistress of animals who can still um, protect the community, who can right the wrongs that nobody else in the story, including the king. And the king, again, I mean, you can't, it's hard to find a better patriarchal fig figure than the king of a folktale or a fairy tale. And they appear in so many. Um, the king needs even the young maiden, you know, um, and so often is she a remnant of this mythic figure, this mistress of animals? Perhaps she is. And that, I think, again, is something that is so refreshing. Um, there, again, there's so many powerful women within folktales and fairy tales. If we just kind of do what you're asking your students to do, if we flip the switch and, and look more closely at that really interesting character who can do all of these really interesting things you know um, we're going to need to take a break right now uh, but I want to come back and and continue to explore this um, you know and I also want to talk about um, you know maybe if you have one or two uh, myths in particular that maybe you want to highlight that they may um, you know, it may have uh, had, you know, goddess elements, you know, of goddess worship in it. Um, you know, maybe talk about that a little bit. And also, um, I believe that a lot of the myths used to be a lot darker. And maybe delve there a little bit, you know. Was the darkness really, um, you know, was the darkness really evil? Or was the darkness, um, you know, maybe the hard lessons we need to know about life or something? Um, so think about that, um, Rachel. And uh, we're going to come back um, and, uh, in just a minute here after a word from uh, Joe Carson about her wonderful book, um, you know, that uh, we're going to hear about right now. Hello, let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia, an exploration of Earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is Drusilla Pettibone on DearMist.com. 
I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example, the info about hinges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. The film was very beautiful and I was amazed how it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. A visual feast and with so many layers. I am also pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage. It seems easily lost among so many new books, and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com. If I could uh, take a, just a second here to put in a plug for my own latest book, uh, Normalizing Abuse, uh, you know, kind of the elevator pitch is, um, you know, it's a book about helping us uh, discover hidden abuse and exploitation out there in the world. And um, I believe it's really important to do because when we live a life that is um, influenced by abuse and exploitation when we continue to allow it to be present in our lives, uh, it, it uh, affects our self-esteem. It uh, affects how we view the world. It affects the decisions we make. And it's really important to look at uh, maybe abuse and exploitation in our life, especially at this time of year. You know, it's the uh, the time when we generally, you know, go down into the darkness and we uh, take assessment, we marinate, um, you know, we, we look back over the year and we think, okay, what worked, what didn't, you know, who is going to be in our life moving forward, who we might might be healthier to set healthy boundaries and move forward without. Um, and, you know, when we have to do those sorts of things for ourselves, and if we don't do those things, sometimes we end up making decisions for ourselves that aren't the best, and, you know, we don't always have the best outcomes. So I think it really starts with, um, and, you know, giving ourselves permission or awakening to the hidden abuse and exploitation in our lives, the stuff that we've said oh, that's just the way it is. There's nothing we can do about it. Or, you know what, that's just normal in today's society. You know what, abuse and exploitation or abuse and exploitation, and we have to find out how to recognize it, heal from it, and develop um, good exit strategies to move on beyond it. So I hope you go to my uh, KarenTate.net page, find the link to Normalizing Abuse, and send it to someone that you love or keep it for yourself. And um, maybe look at some things that have happened or are happening to you that, um, you know, maybe we've been wearing blinders because I know it happened to me. I was a social justice activist. I was out there thinking I'm helping people and, um, uh, you know, create a better life for themselves. And I didn't realize that I was tolerating abuse an exploitation in my own life and I finally got away and um, you know and I want exit strategies for you too all right well uh, we're getting back to our topic today uh, legacy of uh, goddess heroines warriors witches from myths uh, and uh, folk tales and fairy tales uh, with our wonderful and um, very wise and learned guest, Rachel McCoppin. Rachel, is it McCoppin or McCoppin? It's McCoppin. <laughs> yep, you have it right. 
<laughs> okay, great. Um, so, yeah, um, let's, you know, can we talk about maybe the darker fairy tales? Like maybe, I don't know, maybe there were more than the Brothers Grimm originals. Um, you know, uh, was, you know, was there a reason behind the darkness that maybe it, you know, we have to look closer at because there were important messages in the darkness? Yes, I think that that's thank you for that question. I think it's really an excellent question. Um, and we sort of started this um, show out today talking about that in, in myths. Why do we keep coming to them? Why do we like them so much? And we kind of have this misconception, I think, that it's entertainment and, you know, let's watch a cartoon about it. But um, when you really watch them, they're dark, you know. Our ancient myths are dark. Um, our fairy tales and our folk tales are dark. Uh, we just can't deny that. There, so many of them are. Um, and I think, for me, they are dark because there are important messages um, perhaps embedded within them, messages that deal about, the most basic human questionings of life, what happens after we die, why do people die, why do people um, age, that sort of thing. Um, and I think that there are many folk tales and fairy tales that certainly are dealing with those topics. Um, and the focus of my book is really saying, uh, so, okay, we have all of these really strong, powerful female characters, if we're looking a little deeper past just saying, oh, she's the witch, so she must be bad, she's the stepmother, she must be bad immediately, um, then we see a whole lot more. And we see this around the world. Um, we have these characters that look really scary, and they're doing horrible things, and they're certainly introducing those dark topics like death and aging and all of those things to our very often female protagonists in these stories. Um, and I argue that, that very often the introduction of these dark elements are teaching these young, very often maidens, um, how to understand, you know, have a, a wise understanding of these aspects in life. But again, for me it goes beyond that. You know, I really do see um, that there are a lot of characters, like for instance in Russian fairy tale we have the character of Baba Yaga. Um, in Japanese fairy tale there is a similar um, a character of the mountain witch. Um, in grim fairy tales and many, many others we have that witch, right, that is, um, she's the one very often who will introduce the scary elements to these figures. Um, but she introduces the scary elements in ways that are extremely tied to what goddesses are often introducing in myths. And remember, very often, um, mythology was the religion of ancient civilizations. So um, it's interesting well, that we have... Can you give us an example, for yeah. instance, mm -hmm. where, um, you know, a dark myth, a dark character, but this, is, this, was, the, this was the moral that she was... You know, this was the difficult subject she was trying to impress upon the reader or the maiden. Yeah. Um, with the Baba Yaga stories, she often um, will have a young maiden who has to visit her home. And Baba Yaga's home is deep within the wilderness. That's certainly an important concept for goddess worship, right? Um, goddesses throughout history uh, most often are connected to the patterns of nature. So the witch, just like Baba Yaga, um, lives in the deep recesses of the wilderness, well outside the pleasant <laughs> confines of the kingdom, right, ruled, of course, by a male king. Um, so Baba Yaga lives well outside of the kingdom in her scary, which is interesting, but her scary forest. Um, she lives on a house uh, with chicken legs. Um, so again, uh, she has animal guardians. Again, we see that aspect of the old woman who is very comfortable in nature um, and can mystically kind of um, hold dominion over animal uh, animals. Uh, Baba Yaga's fence that surrounds her house is filled with the skulls of people who have dared trespass um, into her home environment uh, from the past. So we often will see these young maidens who, uh, for whatever reason, they're forced to go to Baba Yaga's house. 
and alone. They're always alone. When they're alone, Baba Yaga's inside, and Baba Yaga uh, forces the maiden to go through a series of tests. And this is a pattern we see in a lot of world folk tales and fairy tales. Um, Baba Yaga will ask the maiden to very often, like, um, you know, do anything she says, basically. But it usually begins with um, household drudgery, (laughs) you know. You have to make sure my house is very clean. You have to cook anything I tell you to cook. And the maiden has to learn to just go ahead and do it. And usually the maiden, that's no problem, you know. She comes, she's like very often a stepdaughter or whatever. She's been mistreated, so she's used to a life of oppression like that. Um, but the stories, uh, particularly Baba Yaga stories, they switch really fast. You know, she moves on beyond that drudgery. Uh, and Baba Yaga has her do different things that require uh, mysticism very often. So Baba Yaga will say, well, your next task is to, for instance, sort through this pile of seeds, right? And you have to just find this one specific type of seed out of all of these others. And it seems like an impossible task, but the maiden learns to get the help of nature, you know, to help her and assist her in this. And that's another very common fairy tale or folktale element. So the young maiden learns to call upon animal helpers very often to help her with this task. And again, that's all, those are old, old devices found in mythology surrounding goddesses, right? Goddesses have their animal helpers. They hold dominion over nature. So we see Baba Yaga like systematically teaching these maidens to deal with those things. Um, And then at the end of the story, very often, the maiden has to in some way, and it often involves like killing actually Baba Yaga the witch. You know, we see it in Hansel and Gretel. We see it um, in Snow White. I mean, it's the first version. The first edition is Snow White's actual mother, not her stepmother, but Snow White has to end up killing um, her evil, her wicked stepmother. Uh, The same is true in the Baba Yaga tales. The maiden often has to kill Baba Yaga. Um, And we view that as, oh, yeah, because Baba Yaga is a witch, and so good, get rid of the witch. But if we're looking more closely at it, it's just the last lesson for the maiden before she can go on and be as powerful as Baba Yaga. Um, Baba Yaga, in her stories, she never really dies. You know, she can be killed off, and often it's in this violent way, but Baba Yaga will always return in another tale to teach another maiden. Um, And I think... uh, that the lesson behind that, and it's a very old mythic lesson, um, goddesses very often are teaching the cycles of nature to the people who are worshiping them. Goddesses throughout many world mythologies are teaching um, worshipers that death is a part of the natural world, that it is necessary, but very often they're teaching that um, just like in nature, that there, there really is not death, right? That there is something after death. There is always renewal. And Baba Yaga and many, which is weird, but many witches of folk tales and fairy tales, they definitely know that, you know, that death is not the end for those characters, that they come right back. Um, and I, I think that perhaps that may be a remnant held over for us from ancient mythology where these female characters, they seem different, they seem like just entertainment, but perhaps they are doing the same things that our most ancient goddesses did. They're, they're teaching, interestingly, women, you know, in these stories, um, but really all listeners um, or readers of the tales, they're teaching them these very old and important lessons about the cycles of life. Um, and I think there can be tremendous meaning, you know, in in those tales if we just, if we just look for that. Well, you know, um, I'm wondering um, the idea of like the, the, the dying and rising king or, you know, Dionysus, Jesus, um, were they, were they just stealing from the ancient goddess myths or was, or was that uh, if it was a pagan God, it was just the cycle of life. It was, you know, maybe Jesus in Christianity that was stealing from the pagans. Well, that, I mean, there is so much out there with that topic. But, yes, I mean, I, in my opinion, um, 
Yeah, I think that you you hit the nail on the head. It's it's an old it's the oldest of stories, right? We um, since Paleolithic times before this, you know, as humans, we are looking out at the natural structure of the world. We see the cycles of nature, and so in our religious understanding, our spiritual understanding, we create stories that explains that, um, that puts a human face, a divine and then human face, upon the cycles of nature. Um, and so it's the oldest of stories. Uh, but yes, if we are looking at mythology, if we look at the oldest of myths, it is usually women who have begun that story. And things change, and often the goddesses become gods. You mentioned... Um, we see in Greek mythology, for instance, the statue you said of, of Zeus needs to take Artemis's power. Uh, we see that over and over again, right? That the male god needs to take the power of the once more powerful female goddess. Um, and I argue that those stories are still uh, within our folk tales and our fairy tales, you know. Um, and it's easiest to look at the villains because I think the villains are the stars of the, of the stories. They can do things um, that regular characters can't do, and their wisdom is, is divine in many instances. And perhaps they're not monsters. It's just perhaps we've labeled them monsters because that's what our society has taught us. Um, so, yeah. you know, I encourage people to look further. Well, and look at the new in the Barbie movie, and what isn't isn't Barbie and uh, alongside Oppenheimer, you know, up for you know one of the big awards, uh, and it was Barbie had to go to sort of the misfit Barbie, who I guess you could say was the darker character. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, so she had to go to her to get guidance on what to do. Uh, to fix things, so to speak. So here, you know, it's a, a modern retelling of the old of the old myth, right? Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, I think so. And how often do we see that? You know, and that's important. You know, how often is it's often the old woman, right? The wise woman or the woman who is the misfit. Um, they live outside of society. That's an important element, you know, and how often do we include that in our stories, even in contemporary times? And we shouldn't ignore that, you know. I think for women to be able to obtain the power um, and uh, the prestige that they deserve, um, I think it's important to, to see where these elements have been maintained in our society. Um, we do revere the wise women. We revere the women who are brave enough to exist on the outskirts of society. Um, and so maybe we should look out for these women. <laughs> Where are they? Where are they in our own lives? Where are they? What are they telling us? What are they teaching us? Um, and I think we, you know, we should be brave enough to delve beneath that surface and see what, what messages are really being uh, revealed. Right, right, right. Well, you know, and this may be off off topic, but I wonder if there are some parallels to be eked out. When we see, for instance, the horror movies um, out there today, you know, I'm thinking about Jason, Halloween. Um, yeah. I don't know, do, is there anything going on in, you know, in those stories that has any parallels to what we're talking about today, or that's just something totally different? You know, that's, it's, odd that you've asked me that. <laughs> I definitely, you know, after writing this book, um, I do have a teenage daughter and she's very into horror films and I sit there and I watch them and I think, you know, if I ever have time, <laughs> wouldn't that be an interesting book topic? Because, um, yeah, I think that it's just, especially in contemporary times, horror stories get it uh, write more often than maybe Disney versions of these stories. Like horror films definitely still preserve um, uh, these mythic tales in ways that they were told in mythic times. We see very often, you said the Jason movie, um, we see in Friday the 13th, you know, who is the real murderer? Well, it's the old woman, <laughs> you know, at the end of the story. We often have, like, these old women or these powerful women um, preserved in our horror films, and we often have these young maidens in the Halloween genre, for instance, 
Um, we have young maidens who are having to overcome the insurmountable. They're having to face death. They're having to be brave enough to end up to be the heroine of the movie. In the last Halloween story, for instance, I was very inspired that um, we have the trilogy, right? We have Jamie Lee Curtis as the grandmother, but then uh, her daughter and her granddaughter. We need all three to finally defeat, you know, the monster of, of the movie. Um, and that's an old, old mythic archetype, you know, certainly of the triple goddess and uh, youth, motherhood, and old age. So we're using yeah. the archetype, you know, from mythology. We sure are. Um, and absolutely, I think in horror films, that's a great example of where we're still seeing it uh, being told in a format that might serve to help people. Right. Well, and, and but I don't think they always get it right either because I think I oh. <laughs> was listening to one of the producers saying um, that there's a reason that they always have the killer, Jason, whoever it is, the Halloween guy. I, I, I forget their names. I get them all mixed up now. But you notice they always go after and kill the kids having sex. So it's right. like saying, see, see what's going to happen to you if you have sex. No good is going to come from it, you know. So, um, you know, they send some, you know, some, you know, maybe, um, uh, um, you know, I, I don't know. Is that religious? Is that a secular? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, but it's like they, they're, it felt like they were trying to send the message that sex was bad, you know, and nothing, will, nothing good will come from it except your death, you know. I, I don't know. Right. <laughs> Right. We see that in like fairy tales too. It's interesting. Like fairy tales, it's all about coming of age stories, you know. And horror films, they're kind of doing the same thing. I think that it's it's often that coming of age. What do you have to do? What do you have to learn for you to be self sufficient? To you, to truly be like a grown, mature individual. So, for me, it's interesting. Like. That's the archetype. That's the pattern that we follow for horror films, that you have to be young, you have to be a teenager, you have to do these things teenagers do, and you have to either die, right? You're not good enough, you didn't make it, um, or you have to overcome, and you have to then be like the force that needs to be reckoned with. Um, and, I mean, that's the fairy tale over and over again. That's, that's Baba Yaga and her maiden. You know, you have to overcome right. Baba Yaga. It doesn't mean that you just learn to kill and defeat her it's it's you're now as strong as that thing that was so scary and that's that's really coming of age that's becoming an independent mature you know individual yeah standing in your own power and um you know not not being the victim of circumstance so much yeah. anymore right yeah. Well, Rachel, um, this this has been fascinating. Um, I could could you know I would love to hear more stories, but people will have to buy the book to hear the stories. <laughs> so where can where can they find your book? It is on Amazon. I think that's the easiest place. We're so used to Amazon. Um, yeah. So it's it's available uh, to purchase there. Okay, and I know they can find all your other books too, uh, because I went and put links to all your books on my um, on my own website, so that if people read the show notes, they could go directly there with just a click. Um, well, Rachel, before we you know uh, do the final goodbye, is there anything that I haven't asked you that um, is important to know? Um. We talked about so much, but I think, uh, you know, just to conclude, um, I really do just encourage women uh, to look more closely at myths, folk tales, and fairy tales. Look at the female characters. Um, be inspired by them. Um, they really are, in my opinion, encouraging women to be brave and partake on great adventures um, and to... I think, uh, become who they once perhaps were in um, more powerful times. So I think uh, I would just encourage people to look more closely and learn from the women of these tales. So here's an idea, and I wonder if this would be possible. If women or even women and men wanted to get together a book group or a study group, could they take uh, one of your books, either Legacy of Goddess or Goddess Lost, and the way it's written, could they sort of 
you know, go chapter by chapter and have a discussion like we're having right now about what each of the, you know, characters does and brings and sort of the moral of the story? Well, I think that's an amazing idea. <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely, I do think that the books are structured in a way that it would make it, um, uh, you know, very easy to go through and um, pick out a story. Uh, the book kind of discusses stories in that way. You know, it will break down um, stories that we all know and love. It will introduce new stories that perhaps we are not familiar with. And I think that a book club could easily go through, you know, a story each session and kind of um, discuss what else is in that story. What could these elements mean that perhaps we have overlooked for so long? So, yeah, I think that's a great yeah. idea. Well, and, you know, and here I'm just I'm just throwing spaghetti up against the wall, but boy, would I love to see a TV series that took, you know, <laughs> each chapter, each story. Um, but, you know, I don't know if you've, you know, a long time ago, um, I just, you know, I was close with this hope. You know, you and I were talking before we even got on the air about how hard it is for authors to get traction and for, you know, people to learn about their books. Um, I, I can't remember the author's name, but I certainly remember the book. She was here on the show. Uh, she wrote the book about Pope Joan. And um, she got traction out there in the world with Pope Joan by starting book clubs all around the country that she actually dipped into. And this was before Zoom. I'm not really sure how she did it. But she, you know, I don't know if she called by phone or how they did it. She actually would drop into these book groups, you know, now and again. And before you know it, that book was getting traction, and they ended up making a movie about Pope Joan. So, you know, there's a real unique way to, you know, get your message out there to the world. Uh, I've never forgotten that. You know, I thought, wow, um, you know, what an incredible um, feat. (laughs) Um, So, anyway, you know, may, may may we see your books uh, on television or in movie theaters uh, in the coming years, Rachel. Best of luck with these great books. Thank you so much. That would be wonderful. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, I'll, well, I'll you know, put that energy out there. Thank you, thank you so much, and you and your family have a wonderful holiday. You too. Thank you so much for having me as part of the show. You're welcome. You're welcome. You've added so much. All right. Well, uh, folks, that's about uh, all for me uh, for today. I have to go about uh, getting to my day. I actually have a goddess ritual to do tonight. And uh, we're going to be highlighting uh, Guadalupe, whose feast day was yesterday, I believe. And and also uh, Mary Magdalene, I think, uh, is the other... A female character that we are going to be talking about tonight um, and we're going to be seeing some um, solstice carols and goddess chants and uh, so I have to go get ready for that but uh, I wish you all a beautiful solstice season and um, I will be back with you next Wednesday and I don't have a guest next Wednesday it's just going to be me like I did last week this is kind of unusual I don't do this often uh, I am going to be sharing with you a talk I gave about the light as life and tying in um, uh, Yule goddesses and goddesses of the sun because, uh, you know, this is the time of the year that, uh, uh, you know, the days are getting shorter and, um, no, the opposite. The days are going to start to get longer. And, you know, we are heralding in the return of the light. So uh, I will be talking about that, sharing that talk I gave. Um, and uh, so, you know, next week will be a little bit different. So please, if you don't listen live, catch me from the archives. Uh, so that does it. And uh, talking about sun goddesses, uh, we're going to close, as we always do, uh, with an homage to my favorite sun goddess, uh, Sekhmet, the lion-headed Egyptian goddess, who I believe tells women, make sure you're setting those healthy boundaries, because if you're not, that uh, perpetrator, that abuser, that bully can sneak in like a snake and, uh, you know, bite you with its fangs. So here we go. Homage to Sekhmet. Sa Sekem Sahu.